We've spent the past few Sundays in 1 John, and it was my intent to start there today, but stop turning there. Uh, I'm still working out a couple things about how I want to preach the next section of text, and you add to that, today is Pentecost Sunday, and what that means is it's seven weeks after the Resurrection Sunday, so it's Pentecost Sunday, and churches around the world are, are celebrating this in one way or another. Some aren't, some are. We're not commanded to, so, but it, it I want to today. And so with that in mind, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2, because this is something worth thinking about. It's worth our consideration from Scripture. Um, because in the text that describes this unique day in history, we find three things that I want to touch on this morning, and that's the birth of Jesus' church, the basis for the existence of Jesus' church, and the blueprint for how Jesus' church should function. So we're going to look at these today, and so Acts 2 is where we are, and I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read the whole chapter, which is 47 verses. And I won't dissect every bit of that, because I can't, not, not if I want to stay conscious. Uh, but we are going to talk about a few things. I just want to touch on a few things this morning that might be helpful to us as we are still in our infancy as a church. So let's pray. Father, we come to you today. We thank you for another morning in which we can gather together to praise you, to uh, come together and pray, and to open your word together and be fed. You tell us, your son has told us, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So, Father, we need to eat holy food today. We need to partake of the Scriptures. We need to come to this central act of corporate worship and glorify You in it. And I pray that my communication of that will do so, and that as we hear the words and apply the words to our hearts, as Your Spirit applies them to our hearts, We'll be changed. We'll, we'll see you in a bigger way. And we'll walk out the door being the church today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I want us to consider what a truly Pentecostal church looks like. Um, I say that knowing that there are many denominations and other groups that will claim the name Pentecostal. And I know that within the world of Christianity, that word Pentecostal has taken on a certain meaning. And that might be one reason why some of us who come from traditionally Baptist backgrounds don't think a lot about Pentecost Sunday. Because of the way that word has just kind of been used for, for, to speak of a specific set of people. But today I want us to consider what it should mean from Scripture. Because when it's all said and done... <coughs> And I may cough a bit this morning. Every church should be a Pentecostal church. So the first thing I want you to see is the birth of Jesus' church. And I emphasize that it is Jesus' church. Because, and let's remember, the first time we see the word church in Scripture is in Matthew chapter 16. It actually only occurs two times in the Gospels. Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. Matthew 16 is where Jesus has taken His disciples up to a place called Caesarea Philippi. It's 
probably the farthest they would ever get from Jerusalem, from the center of Israel. It's out in Gentile territory, and there's a lot that could be said. If I was preaching Matthew 16, I'd go into a whole lot more detail about that setting. But they're up there at Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus asked them a question. And it's the most important question any of us could ever answer or be asked. And it's, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? And of course, hopefully you are conditioned to remember that Peter is the one who spoke up and said, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. And if that, that's the right answer. And Peter was not given that answer on his own. It, it, flesh and blood did not reveal this to Peter. It was the Holy Spirit. And Jesus responds saying, on this rock, I will build my church. And he didn't mean on Peter. He didn't mean on the apostles even. He meant on that confession. On that truth. On this rock. On this bedrock confession of faith. That Jesus is the Christ. The Messiah. The Son of the living God. Jesus would build His church. And He does say, My church. Not the church. Not your church. Not... My church, but Jesus' church. And we would do well to remember that. Especially in the, the formative phase of awake church. It cannot be my church. It cannot be Scott's church. It cannot be your church. It cannot be our church. It is Jesus' church. The church should take on no one's personality but that of its Lord and Savior. And that's what we see in Acts chapter 2. Jesus had promised His disciples in the upper room the night before His death that when He was gone, He would send the Helper, the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit. He told them that the Holy Spirit was already with them, but would be in them. And then after His resurrection and right before He ascended into heaven, in Acts 1 verse 8, He promised His disciples that they would receive power when He sent them the Holy Spirit. And they would be His witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. So the disciples went out into Jerusalem not on their own accord and not by their own wits and abilities but by the power of the Spirit to fulfill the mission their Lord, Savior, Master had given them. They would be His witnesses. And to that end, beloved, the power source of a weight church cannot be its pastors. It cannot be its membership. It cannot be the fact that we've been blessed with this this area back here that we're fixing up. That we're we're best we're blessed with this place that we're basically able to use for free right now. If a weight church isn't plugged into the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, well then we're lost. We're useless. We're like a light bulb turned off. Fulfilling no purpose whatsoever but to take up space. We are the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. And what we see in Acts 2 is that in the same way Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary, His church was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The chapter Acts 2 begins with people from all over the world gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And this was something that was established way back in Leviticus chapter 23. 
It was a time in which, as we read in Leviticus 23, there was to be a holy convocation, a holy gathering of people of God. They were to all come to Jerusalem. <clears throat> well, it wasn't Jerusalem in Leviticus. It was wherever the, the, the tabernacle was. And verse 1, Acts 2 verse 1, they are in an upper room because the people of God are those who have believed in His Son, Jesus Christ. There are about 120 of them. Relatively small number. They fit into a room. But suddenly, there was a sound. You know, I didn't even read the text. Let me back up and read the text. Good grief. Pretty bad when the preacher forgets to read the Word. At least I did it unintentionally. Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. <coughs> and there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves. And they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. <clears throat> but Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and to all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth below, Blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, 
I saw the Lord always in my presence. For He is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me a full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit... He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And I'm going to stop there and come back to the last part of the chapter in just a few minutes. But backing up, there was a violent rushing wind. Well, there was a sound of a violent rushing wind. We see this vivid language of tongues as of fire distributed among the people. They were filled with the Holy Spirit that day. They began speaking in tongues. And I do want you to notice, just in case you've ever been confused about this, tongues are not gibberish. Okay? We could spend a lot more time on this, and maybe we will someday, but tongues are not some language you don't understand. Tongues are real languages people speak. God uses tongues not so that we can uh, talk in some weird language, but so that we can proclaim the gospel in a language people can understand. And I don't believe tongues are active today. I, I believe maybe during the tribulation period they will be again. But during this apostolic era, during this time when the New Testament was not written down for everyone to have in front of them, What we see here is that real languages of real people were gathered from all around Jerusalem that day. You've got Parthians, Medes, Mesopotamia to the east. You've got Rome to the north. You've got uh, Libya and uh, places to the west and, and the south. You've got people all over the place in Israel and it's no accident they're all here. You know, Paul would later write that the gospel was to the Jew first 
and also to the Greek. And that's what we have seen here. 120 Jews who trust in Jesus, verse 11, speaking the mighty deeds of God. Right in the middle of the city of David to all sorts of Jews and Gentiles from other lands gathered for this holy convocation. And the people ask, what does this mean? So the church has been birthed by the Holy Spirit. The church that belongs to the second person of the Trinity was birthed by the third person of the Trinity in concert with the will of the first person of the Trinity. The church belongs to God, beloved. And anytime we start to try to claim ownership of the church, we are robbing from God. And we've got to remember that. But to everyone on the outside, they're asking, what does this mean? And that's where we see the basis for Jesus' church. Because God's purpose for His church entails the proclamation of a very specific message. And it's not a self-help message. It's not designed to make you walk out the door feeling like you're about to live your best life. In Acts 2, we find Peter being the one to take the lead in proclaiming it. And again, that's no accident. As he was on the other end of that exchange with Jesus in Matthew 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. <coughs> it's also no accident because just three, just not three, just a few weeks prior, Peter had denied Jesus three times. But now he is the one stepping up to preach Jesus. That He's both Lord and Christ. And He's speaking that to Jews about the mercy and the grace of God as someone who has experienced firsthand the mercy and the grace of God and the restoring power of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter was a man who had experienced this power in his own life and now he would preach it to others. So he preached the Gospel. He didn't preach politics. Notice that in the first sermon of the church, he doesn't uh, preach against Caesar. He doesn't try to rally the troops for some social agenda. He preaches the gospel from the scriptures. And I, I, don't, I just want to marinate on that for a minute. Because we are living in a time when preachers of all stripes seem to be minimizing or flat out ignoring the gospel. There are many who are subjugating the gospel to whatever the issues of the day are. Rather that be the environment or issues of marriage and sexuality or political stuff. Or here more lately, issues related to race and social justice. And it's not wrong. In fact, it is right to bring the gospel to bear on each of the issues of our lives. But it is wrong to use the gospel to preach about those issues. And I, I hope you understand the difference between the two. Because the lines are being very much blurred these days. We cannot use the gospel as a means of preaching our agenda. We must make the gospel the agenda and apply it to every part of our lives. Then there are others who flat out preach a false gospel. I heard a... a a famous preacher on the radio this week. He didn't preach the gospel. He preaches feelings. 
And this particular sermon wasn't really a sermon at all, but a self-help motivational speech to feel good about your life. God is going to make you a miracle. God is going to, to, to bring great things to you. And it's all about feeling better. It's all about money. It's all about stuff. It's all about things that fade away. That preacher and those like him have nothing to say for those who are truly suffering. They have nothing to give those for whom tomorrow will be worse than today. And then there was a little prayer at the end about repenting and believing, but that's cotton candy, guys. Peter preached the gospel from the Word of God. He proclaimed Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He announced that what was going back, what was said years ago, now it's coming to pass. This is the inauguration of the last days. Preaching from Joel. And that the Holy Spirit was being poured out. Then he goes to Psalm 16 to defend the resurrection. Those in Jerusalem would have been familiar with Psalm 16. It wasn't talking about David. It was talking about someone from David. It was talking about Jesus. <coughs> who being crucified seven weeks earlier has now been raised from the dead. And Peter says, He's the Lord. He's the Messiah. He's the one you should have been worshiping the whole time. He is God. And you can imagine the reaction of these Jews. And if you're a Christian this morning, maybe you don't even have to imagine it too much. Because if you're a Christian this morning, it means you have come to a point in your life where you've realized you are a hopeless, helpless sinner. An enemy of God. You've come to a point where you have recognized the truth about Jesus and believed in Him and Him alone for your salvation. You've realized it's only the finished work of Jesus Christ that saves sinners. And you've realized that you must repent of your sins and entrust everything you are, everything you were, everything you ever will be to Him in response to the grace He has shown you. This and this alone is the proclamation of the church. If we try to, to sell people on something different, we're trying to, 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 to give them clearance items, guys. This is the proclamation of the church, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the basis of our existence. You know, if, if, if God wanted us to be with Him, when just in the, at the moment He saves us, He could take us just like that. But He has left us here to reach... He, we are the means, the church is the means, through the proclamation of the gospel, of reaching the world. Both so that He can save the world and judge it, by the way. This is what we are to be about as a church. To proclaim the gospel obediently, with boldness, and compassion, rather it's in a church service or rather it's in a one-on-one -on -one encounter. This is the truth and we are to be about the truth. We may or may not see 3,000 souls saved as we're going to see, uh, really as we do see at the end of this, as I, as I read to you, uh, verse 41. 
We may not see that. But we trust God for the results because as we see in verse 39, the promise is for you and your children and for all those who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. He's really the one who's sovereign in all this. But we trust Him with the results. He's the one who is in control. But this is the proclamation He's given us. Not social justice, not self-help, not self-esteem, not financial deliverance, but deliverance from death. Deliverance from sin. Deliverance from your personal sins. Deliverance into eternal life. So there's the birth of the church by the Holy Spirit entering the lives of those who believe at Pentecost. That's the the birth of the church. The basis is Christ and the gospel. The blueprint then is seen in 42 through 47. So let's just look at that again. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them with all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. What's the blueprint for the church? What's the church supposed to look like? The first thing we see here, the very first thing, is they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, we've made quite a deal over the fact that we're unapologetic that this is a teaching church. And that's good. That's the way it should be. But that can't just be a slogan We've all got to embrace that aspect of the church. Okay? We've got to be doctrinal people. Doctrine matters. Theology matters. And teaching and doctrine and theology are dirty words in some places these days. Like on that radio sermon I heard. And it feels like more often than not people are gathering to, to again, feel better. Or to soothe scarred consciences. Or to just be with people. Or to meet felt needs. It's noteworthy that the first thing Luke writes here is that the church was committed to the apostles' teaching. It's Jesus who promised His apostles the Spirit would lead them into all truth. Paul would write later in Ephesians 2.20 that the apostles were the foundation of the church built upon... Christ, the Keith Cornerstone. So these new believers at Pentecost needed to know the foundational truths about God so that so apostles delivered the teaching orally and then through the 
God-breathed writings of the New Testament. It's not an accident, folks, that teaching is listed first. Because without knowledge of doctrine, we are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. We've got to be those who embrace the deeper things. We must not, you know, I'm going to get off my notes a little bit here, but we must not be those who are satisfied by milk when we should be eating solid foods. We should not be satisfied with just knowing the elementary principles as the writer of Hebrews says, but we ought to be pressing on toward a fuller knowledge of Christ. Peter tells us to, and he's using milk in a different way in, in, in 1 Peter than the writer of Hebrews does. He says, long for the pure milk of the Word. I ask you this morning, do you long... It's easy to say I believe this, and it's easy to say this is God's Word. But do you long for this? Here lately, confession time. I've longed just to rest. I've been busy. Emotionally beat up a little bit. I've been... I'm not going to say everything I've been. I've been wondering, what's your plan for me? Confession time, guys. I haven't longed for this like I should have. But the test of one's character, and maybe I'm not showing very good character here lately, the test of one's character is not, are you looking at this in the good times? The question is, are you looking for what God has for you in the really junk garbage times? I need to repent. Maybe you do too. We must long for the pure milk of the Word. We must be committed to doctrine. And do we believe it or are we really going to practice it? It has become virtuous in our times to dismiss truth. I've had family members tell me, don't give me doctrine, just give me Jesus. Just chew on that for a minute. Because that's how a lot of people think. Maybe that's how you think sometimes. Don't give me doctrine, just give me Jesus. That's just that's like saying, don't give me truth, just give me feelings. Folks, Jesus, His first concern isn't your feelings. Your feelings are tainted by sin. Truth comes from Christ. Jesus taught. He gave us the God-breathed Scriptures that are profitable for us. He told us to be well-equipped, to be diligent, to make ourselves approved. He told us in Acts 17 that the Bereans were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians because they searched the Scriptures to see if all the things Paul was preaching them were true. 
Think about that. Jesus, when He was in a rough time, Matthew 4, four. I've already quoted it once today. But Jesus had gone 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. He's weak physically, not eating, not drinking. And the father of lies, the greatest tempter of them all, Satan himself, appears and said, turn these stones into bread. He says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And you know what he was quoting? Scripture. All three times Jesus answers Satan's temptations in Matthew 4 and in Luke 4, he's quoting from Deuteronomy. We've got to be about the Bible. Next, they were devoted to fellowship. And I touched on this a little bit last week. This is, you know, not getting together for the weekly meal. You know, it's not going out to lunch later. That's not what it's about. It's about true partnership. It's about sharing life together. And that becomes hard, and it's getting harder in the days where we're trying to protect our privacy more and more. Um, A gentleman at a church I used to preach at made this observation about how 40, 50 years ago, houses were built with front porches. Today, houses are built with how can your backyard be the best? And we lock our doors now, right? And I, regrettably, that kind of mentality carries itself over into the body of Christ where we meet and then we depart and then we come back next week. And I wonder if we're truly sharing life the way God wants us to. And, and maybe, maybe I need to work on that too. I think maybe we all could, could find ways to work on that one. Remember what 1 John 1.3 said that we read last week. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us, that's other believers. And our, indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Paul calls it the fellowshipping of faith in the book of Philemon. So we need to constantly be asking ourselves, are we truly partnering with one another in a way prescribed by the Holy Spirit? Are we, in he, like Hebrews 10, 24 tells us, are we stimulating one another to love and good deeds. Are we Romans 10 or 12 verse 10 devoted to one another in brotherly love giving preference to one another in honor? Are we Galatians 5:13 as those called to freedom loving and serving one another? Are we Ephesians 4:25 speaking the truth to one another so as to edify and build up our brothers and sisters in Christ? True fellowship involves getting into one another's spiritual lives. We are not created to be islands. That's not what the church is. There's doctrine, there's fellowship. Verse 42, the breaking of bread. And in this context, it's a very specific breaking of bread. Different from what we see later in verse 46. This is talking about the Lord's Supper. (coughs) Peter's already baptized. Now he says, you know, Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, Luke writes here, was a customary part of their lives. The bread represents the 
perfectly righteous life of Christ. The cup represents the sacrificial atoning death of Christ on the cross. And that can't be done enough, by the way. It can't be done enough. Then prayer. They were devoted to prayer. And prayer is a means by which we humble ourselves before God. Prayer is a means by which we also connect with one another before God. Prayer is a time God uses to sanctify our hearts to the point we depend on Him more and more and more. As individuals, beloved, are we, call, we are called upon to pray without ceasing. We are called upon to pray without ceasing. To always be praying for one another. We're called to pray for the return of Christ. We're called to pray for the sick. We're called to pray for our leaders. We are to pray and pray and pray. And we're also called to pray together. Where two or more are gathered, He hears it. If we pray according to the will of God, it's done. Doctrine, fellowship, Lord's Supper, prayer, all of these are central to our gospel mission. And that's why they are fundamental to await church on Pentecost Sunday. If we can devote ourselves to these things, there's no telling how God will bless us, how God might use us in this community. And, and maybe these other things will happen. The phrases, these phrases just jump off the page here, the last part of the chapter. A sense of awe. A right perspective of the glory of God should provoke in us a sense of awe. Amazed at what God is doing. And that's not just how many people walk through the door. Just what God's doing in our lives. They had all things in common. Signs and wonders. Now, in the early church, there were supernatural signs and wonders that we read about in the book of Acts. We don't see the types of of healings and things that go on there today. I don't believe. I believe that those sign gifts are, are put aside for a time. Again, that's another discussion for another day. But we can see a miracle that's far more lasting than a physical healing. The new birth is quite the miracle, guys. Someone, a dead sinner being made alive is a miracle. Because you don't have the power to come to Christ on your own, and neither do I. But God makes us alive, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. And when we see, that's, that's a miracle. God's worked a miracle in my life, and He has yours if you believe. The church will be together. Unity built upon the Word of God. Not superficial unity. Unity grounded upon God's Word and the Gospel. <coughs> all things in common. And that doesn't mean that we all have to go out and sell everything we have and live as, as this communist society. Some people do believe that, actually. When they read this passage... And when they read in Acts 4, some of these things, that's kind of how they take it. That's not what's going on here. What is going on here is 
people meeting the physical and material needs of one another, people meeting the emotional and spiritual needs of one another, continuing of one mind with a singular purpose to glorify God and be obedient to all He's commanded. Taking meals together, being with one another, praising God, having favor with all the people. That's an underrated aspect of the church. This is a church that developed a reputation in the community. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone's going to love us. Because guess what? Not everyone loved the Jerusalem church. We're going to find that out real quick. If you keep reading that, you find that out very quickly. But, they better not have a legitimate reason to have a, a bad feeling about us. Okay? We, we must... Having a good reputation means the world can't have a legitimate gripe against you. It's the same way a pastor must be must have a good reputation with those on the outside. Some people might hate the pastor, but they better not hate him for good reason. Okay? Same way with the whole church. That's what's being said here. And God will add to the number as He wills. And do remember it's God who adds the numbers. That means... And I think this is important here in the early stages of our church. We should not panic when we don't see as many people show up as we'd like. We shouldn't panic and think, well, we need to to change something. We need to make people more comfortable. We need to, to adjust. Maybe not. Our job is not to conform to the world to make the world like us better. Our job is to be salt and light. And sometimes salt doesn't taste good to people. And sometimes the light is too bright for people. But that doesn't mean we stop living holy lives. And that doesn't mean we stop shining the gospel light of Jesus Christ even to the vilest offender. Because guess what? If God wills, to quote the hymn, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. So praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear His voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. And our job is to say, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give Him the glory because great things He has done. And that's what Pentecost is all about. That's what our church should be all about. A truly Pentecostal church. So I'm going to close with this, and this is actually what Encyclopedia Britannica of all places says about the early church. But I saw this years ago and it's been in my notes on this passage ever since. And and whenever I'm reading about this, I always like to add this. <clears throat> but the most notable thing and, and, and as I'm reading this, ask yourself, does this does my life even come close to this? When when people see me, do they think this of me? The most notable thing about the life of the early Christians was their vivid sense of being a people of God, called and set apart. 
The Christian church in their thought was a divine, not a human institution. It was founded and controlled by God, and even the world was created for its sake. This conception controlled all the life of the early Christians, both individual and social. They regarded themselves as separate from the rest of the world and bound together by peculiar ties. Their citizenship was in heaven, not on earth, and the principles and laws by which they strove to govern themselves were from above. The present world was but temporary, and their true life was in the future. Christ was soon to return, and the employments and labors and pleasures of this age were of small concern. That should be convicting to us, by the way. In the everyday life of Christians, the Holy Spirit was present, and all the Christian graces were the fruits. A result of this belief was to give their lives a peculiarly, I didn't say that right, a peculiarly enthusiastic or inspirational character. Let me read that again or try to. A result of this belief was to give their lives a peculiarly enthusiastic and inspirational character. Are you peculiar? Are you peculiar? Theirs were not the everyday experiences of ordinary men, but of men and women, I should add, lifted out of themselves and transported into a higher sphere. I couldn't have a more well-articulated hope for a wake church or for my own life. And for all of the people of God. So as we close this morning. I've got to close with the gospel. God has a requirement. That requirement is nothing less than pure, perfect righteousness. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And... The man's, man's problem is there is none righteous, no, not one. All have turned aside. All have gone astray. There is none who does good. There is none who seeks after God. If you don't believe me, believe Paul. Paul was quoting the Old Testament. The result, if nothing changes, is eternity in the lake of fire. Man's one and only solution, in fact, it's not man's solution, it's God's solution, is that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, came and bore the wrath of His Father for all sin, for all time, for all who will ever believe, so that all those whom the Lord calls, all those whom the Spirit indwells, come to Him by faith. And I pray you will do that if you haven't yet. That's what we've got to go out there and tell people. The gospel. May we truly be a Pentecostal church in that sense. In Jesus' power, we can. Let's pray. Father, thank You. May You be glorified. I've talked enough. I pray You'll work in our hearts. May You be glorified. May we be truly a church that embodies 
the Pentecostal spirit that embodies your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.